This letter uh, was written by Paul to his dear friend and child in the, fl- in, in the faith, Timothy. Um, and as you've heard me mention many, many times before, um, and as evident if you just turn on the news, this world that we live in is really, really messed up. And the reason that it is messed up is because of sin. We see it all around us. I know that the, our culture doesn't want to use that archaic term of sin, but we know that the state we're in is because of sin. And the worst thing about sin is not um, the natural disasters. It's not crime. It's not famine. It's not disease. It's not even physical death. The worst thing, the worst consequence of our sin is separation from holy God. Our sins separate us from him. And the wonderful truth of the Bible is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the wonderful message of the Bible. That message brings hope. And yet Satan, the great enemy of God, will try to stop that message in any way possible. He hates that message. In the first century, as this wonderful message was going out from uh, the mouth of the Apostle Paul, Satan was seeking to stop it in any way that he could. He was seeking to stop it through outright persecution. Uh, Anyone who had named the name of Jesus uh, was in danger of being persecuted or even killed. And another way, another clever way that he tried to stop it was by distorting the truth of the message. Yes, Jesus saved, but that's not enough in bringing in all of these other destructive heresies destructive teachings which took away from the truth of the message. And this is why Paul urged Timothy to know the truth and then to stop those who were teaching stuff that was not the truth. That's been our focus for the past couple of weeks. It's going to be our focus again this morning. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. This is the very word of God. Verse 12 says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come, and this is your word. This is not the words of man. This is your very holy word, and I pray once again that we would tremble at it. I pray that it would take root into our lives. I pray that we would be reminded of all that you have done for us today, and that we would stand in awe of that. Remind us of your holiness. Remind us of our sin. And remind us of your amazing, amazing grace that has been poured out on us. Lord, change us, transform us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Life is hard. 
I don't need to tell you that. Life is very difficult. Over the past couple of weeks, I have talked with many of you, and you have testified to that very effect. Um, whether it be difficulties at work or at school or whether it be uh, physical ailments that you are struggling with or maybe financial burdens, life is hard. I have many friends currently who are struggling with physical illnesses that are really debilitating towards them. I have a good friend that I've told you about before, uh, just a young girl in her early 20s who has struggled with migraines, constant migraines, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And just serving the Lord with this pain that she has. This past week, I, I heard about a friend that we had done mission work with, with in Mexico. And she had to flee Mexico because she, her life was in danger. She was being persecuted. And for the safety of her, her husband, and her unborn child, they had to leave that country and come back to the United States to, uh, to regroup, so to speak. Many of you could share similar struggles. And maybe it seems like lately the bad days seem to be far outweighing the good days. And you're becoming weak and weary in this battle that we call life. When this happens, the tendency is to focus on the negative rather than the positive. The tendency is to develop a woe is me type of an attitude and you forget how incredibly blessed that you are as a Christian now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not trying to minimize any kind of pain or suffering uh, that you are going through in this life. I am not saying, hey, just suck it up and stop complaining. That is not what I'm saying. We are permitted to mourn at the pain and the sorrow in this life. When the diagnosis is cancer, when the news is bad, we are to mourn over those things. In fact, if you look at Jesus, Jesus mourned over the effects of sin in, in the world when he was here walking in this world. And we, if Jesus mourned, then we can mourn over disease and injustice in the world and death or whatever else it may be. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we can grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We have hope. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, Jacob who had a very, very difficult life upon hearing more bad news. His son, he thought Joseph was dead, and he thought another son was in danger too. He said this to his son who uh, had come and told him this. He said this, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He's just looking at his life and saying, how much more can I take? Joseph's dead. Simeon is probably dead, and now you're going to take Benjamin, and he'll probably be killed too. What Jacob did not realize at that time was that God was working behind the scenes, that all of his children were well and that they would actually be flourishing. He was working behind the scenes. And what he should have done, God was working behind the scenes, and Jacob should have known that. Jacob should have trusted God. He should have had the same attitude that Job had when he was stripped of all his possessions and his children. And he said this, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to stop there just for a moment and ask the question, what does this mean? How does this apply to us? What is the message that God is trying to communicate to us? And here's the simple way that this applies. If you find yourself complaining more often than rejoicing, if you find yourself developing a almost like a woe is me type of attitude, if you've lost the joy in your life, 
then it's probably because you have forgotten all that God has done for you. And you're focusing more on the circumstances rather than the one who controls those circumstances that is working all things together for your good. At that moment, you have forgotten that because of what Christ has done for you, you have been spared from the worst thing that could ever happen to you or anyone else, and that is God's wrath being poured out on you. And you have been given the wonderful promise that one day all of this pain will be over and that you will have a resurrected body which is not subject to disease or depression or death or any of the cares of this world. You've forgotten Paul's words in Romans 8, 18, where he says this, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Life is hard. And we were never promised that life would be easy. But our greatest hope comes in what God has done for us in Christ. In the first part of this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, uh, you can almost hear the sadness in his voice uh, as he is talking about the state of the church in Ephesus. You can hear him grieving, and then you can also uh, sense that concern and even that anger that he has over these false teachers who have come in and distorted the very gospel that saved Paul, and now they are distorting it to where it's not the true gospel anymore. And last week we looked at verses 8 through 11 and we saw that the law of God was written for anyone who goes contrary to the glorious gospel of our God. And I would imagine that when Paul wrote those words, you can see he's, he's angry right now, but when he wrote those words, the glorious gospel of our God, I would imagine that he just paused and reflected on that the glorious gospel of our God and just reminded himself of what that meant, what the glorious gospel was. And then when he wrote those words that I have been entrusted with, it must have blown him away thinking, me, me, this glorious gospel that has the power to save lives. I have been entrusted with this glorious gospel and he must have lost it for a moment i would imagine the 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 false teachers and their doctrine just went out the window for a moment and he thought about him a vile antagonistic persecutor of the church of jesus could actually be saved and then used in service pondering this wonderful truth caused him to stop his current thought and to take a moment and to reflect on god's amazing grace towards him And so this morning, I want to look at just two things from the text, just two things. I want to look at what Christ did for Paul, and then I want to look at why Christ did that for Paul. So what Christ did for Paul, and then why he did it. So let's start with the first one. What exactly did Christ do for Paul? There are two main things that he did, two main things that uh, Christ did for Paul. He saved him, and then he put him into his service. Let's look at the first. He saved him. The fact that Paul was saved is seen in many places in this text. It's hinted at in verse 13 where it says this, but I received mercy. And then again in verse 14 where it says this, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. But it is expressly stated in verse 15 when he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. The question that we always want to answer is, saved from what? Saved from what? If you are unfamiliar with the teachings of the Bible, you're thinking they're always talking about being saved. Is there a danger? Is there a hurricane that's coming? Is there a flood coming? Is there, is there a shooter here or something like that? What are we being saved from? And the answer is always that we are saved from the wrath of God. We are being saved from the wrath of God. Paul, as a sinner in general, deserved God's wrath. But in verse, 14, in verse 13, he gets specific about his sins. And he's saying, this is why I deserved God's wrath. Let me give you some specifics. And he says this, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, Remember last week how we talked about the law of God and how the first four of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 deal with our relationship towards God. How if we break those, we are violating our relationship with God. And then the last six deal with our relationship with fellow human beings. Well, as a blasphemer, Paul broke the first four commandments, his relationship with God. And as a persecutor, an insolent opponent— he, was in, he violated the last six of those commandments. An insolent opponent is a person with no normal concern for human kindness, basically a bully, uh, a person driven by violence or contempt for others. They are intent on humiliating and mistreating others. That is a clear violation of the last six commandments because the last six commandments are summed up in the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you are persecuting people, if you are looking to mistreat them, to humiliate them, you are not loving them as you love yourself. This brings us to another important question that we have to ask, answer from the text. When Paul says that he is the foremost of sinners, the worst sinners, is he using hyperbole to make his point, or is he being honest? Does he really see himself as the chief of sinners, as the worst sinner? I think that he is being serious at this point. I don't think he, that he is using hyperbole, and here's why. Even though if we were transported back to the first century, we could find a whole lot of people who were worse sinners than Paul. There is this paradoxical thing that goes on in the minds of people depending on how close they are to God or how far away they are from God. And here's what I mean by that. And this isn't true of everyone, but it's often true. The further a religious person is away from God, in that kind of like uh, uh, just that not real relationship with God, the closer that they actually feel to God. Okay, and here's what I, I mean by that. Um, the fact that they even acknowledge God, the fact that they try to not do things that other people do, bad things that are maybe talked about in the Bible, the fact that they may even occasionally pray to God, in their minds, uh, is, is more than most people do. And God is pretty pleased just to have the attention, just to be thought about every once in a while uh, by them. Uh, God is pretty pleased with the attention, hence they feel that they are close to God. I have a, a good relationship with God. And what they're doing is they're comparing themselves to perhaps other people in the world. However, a person, uh, the closer a true follower of God gets to him, very often what happens is the further that they feel away from him. And here's what I mean by that. Um, the, the, the closer they get to God, the greater 
they, uh, they understand his holiness, which makes them more aware of their sin, and, their, and even sins that they didn't even realize that they had before. And then they feel like they've come so far, and yet they have so far to go yet. Sin becomes more offensive to them, and yet it seems more abundant than it ever was before. I know that I've used this illustration before, but it's always a good one. Um, when I was uh, doing drywall in my basement in St. Louis, um, I hate mudding. I hate doing the finishing work, and uh, I had put up the walls. I'd put the mud in the, the seams and the holes, and I thought it looked pretty good. And then my friend came over, and he had this thing he called a truth light. It was just a silly lamp with no shade on it. And he took it, and he put it right at the corner of the drywall. Oh my goodness, it looked like the surface of the moon now. I mean, it was, you could see valleys and you could see craters in it. It looked good until the light exposed it for what it really was. And this is what God does. Because of his love, he comes and he shines that light. And the closer we get to that light, the more we see the imperfections. And that light is not to say, you're horrible, you're horrible. That light is to say, this is what you need to work on. This is God's grace and God's love. So the closer that a, that a true follower of Christ gets to him, the more they're aware of God's holiness. And this is another thing that it does. Is it, it prevents them from ever comparing themselves to others. It prevents them from uh, comparing themselves to others. At that point when they come face to face with God's holiness, the only thing that matters to them is how much they want to please God but how far they feel they're falling short of that. That's what's in their mind. If you can turn with me to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, uh, Paul illustrates this point here using his own personal life experience. <clears throat> the context here in Romans 7 is that Paul had just explained how the law had showed him what sin was. And even sins that he didn't even realize he had before. He, the example that he gives is coveting. He says, I didn't even know it was wrong to covet until the law said you shall not covet. And then I realized that I'm coveting all over the place. The law exposed that for him. It showed him his sin. And so then in verse 15, here's what he says. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Remember the one who claims to be the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. In verse 15, he says this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then skipping down to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You can hear his frustration, right? Man, I'm drawing close to God, and yet I feel my sins are being exposed, and I feel so far away. And so he concludes in verse 24, he says this, wretched man that I am, <laughs> wretched man that I am. And then the natural question that follows is, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I need a Savior. I need deliverance. And the wonderful answer comes in verse 25 and actually chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You see that? Who will deliver me? I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me? Christ Jesus delivers him. And because of what Jesus has done by living the life that he could not live and dying the death that he deserved, there is therefore now no condemnation for him. I love what Hebrews says. It says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us before the Father. Those last two verses in Romans, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, I believe are the occasion for which Paul had when he broke into this thanksgiving that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I believe that Paul stood amazed, not just at the fact that he was actually employed in service to the king of kings, but the fact that he was actually still alive, I think blew Paul away. When he realized how sinful he was, I do not deserve to be here another second. He understood God's amazing, amazing grace. He didn't deserve it, and neither do we. But here's the reality that we often forget, um, and, and this is something I think is common uh, with people. We, we tend to forget um, God's holiness, and when we start to forget God's holiness, what happens is that we start to compare ourselves to others. And let's face it, you can always find someone that's worse than you, right? I mean, you can find someone that's worse than you in here, or if that doesn't work, go turn on the news, right? Or walk out on the street. You can hear someone who's using foul language or doing something that's, uh, that, that is horrible, that's offensive to God. You can always find someone who is worse than you. And we find someone like that to make ourselves feel better. And when we do find that person, uh, we, we're, we, the temptation is to reach the erroneous conclusion that it really didn't take much for God to save me. It really didn't take much uh, for God uh, to save me. And I've been tempted in this way before. I know I've shared this before. Um, when I was uh, a pharmacist, uh, when I was first uh, working uh, in the early years, I worked mostly in very low-income low areas where most of the customers that came in were, uh, over 50% were on Medicaid state aid. Many of the women came in, had multiple children uh, from multiple partners. And I looked at them and I looked at myself and, and I took pride in the fact that I, I had not been promiscuous that I, through hard work and discipline, had earned not only a bachelor's, but also a master's degree. I bought my own house. I paid my own bills. I didn't do drugs. I didn't smoke. I didn't get drunk. I didn't use bad language, or at least not that much. Um, I went to church. I was an upstanding citizen. And then I looked at all that I had done, and then I looked at these people, and I looked at them with contempt. In my mind, they were lazy, selfish, vile sinners who God was absolutely disgusted with. And I thanked God that I was not like others. I thanked God that I was not like them. I thanked him that I was good and that I was educated and that I was responsible. You see, in my mind... For one of those people to be saved, it would have taken a complete, drastic spiritual makeover. But to save me, it just took a little bit of dusting off on God's part. I had no concept of the holiness of God or the offensiveness of my sin. I didn't. 
In my mind, I was miles ahead of them, spiritually speaking. If I would, but if I would have thrown God's holiness into the mix, I would have realized that I was a million miles from God's standards. And if you take a million compared to one, one mile is negligible at that point. I was just as vile as they were. And it took looking at God's holiness to remind me of this. Jesus encountered a similar situation in Luke chapter 7, where he was eating at the house of a self-righteous Pharisee by the name of Simon. And they're eating there, and they're having a meal, and all of a sudden this woman comes in, and she's called a sinner, which means that she was sexually promiscuous. And Simon immediately recognized what kind of woman this was. And he showed contempt for her. He was disgusted that she would even come into his house. But this woman went right past him and just fell at Jesus' feet and started to weep and started to wash his feet with her tears and her hair. And the whole time, Simon is thinking this. If he really knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her do this. In fact, he would kick her out just like I want to kick her out right now. I want to get this nasty woman out of my presence. And in the midst of that, Jesus knowing exactly what he's thinking, Jesus turns, looks at the woman, and then looks at Simon. And here's what he says. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The point that I am trying to make is this. Don't ever, ever compare yourself to others in order to make yourself feel better. Jesus talking, who he's been forgiven little, was just talking to Simon there because Simon was just as sinful as this woman was. If you ever compare yourselves to others, then you have forgotten the amazing grace and sacrifice that it took on God's part to save a wretch like you and me. That's the reality. So Paul saw himself as a wretched, vile sinner who was saved by God's amazing, superabounding, overflowing grace. And it produced in him a steady stream of thanksgiving to God who would do such a thing for such a vile sinner as he. As a result, Paul's service to Jesus was so much more sweeter, so much more passionate. His attitude of service before God if you look at his life, was almost like, I'm doing you a favor, God. Aren't you so glad that I'm on your team? Look how smart I am. Look how learned I am. His attitude after coming face to face with Christ was, you gave it all for me. And now the least I can do is to give it all for you. And even if it gets tough at times, I will remember what you have done and what you, will, what you continue to do for me and what you will do for me in the future. And that will be what sustains me through the hard times. You see, if we don't think that God has saved us from much, then our service to him becomes more of a favor to God rather than a 
debt of gratitude towards God. Paul stood amazed that God could even consider him for service in his kingdom. There was no hope for Paul apart from the grace of God as presented in the gospel. And now these false teachers were coming in and they were perverting the very gospel that had saved Paul so powerfully and it made Paul sick and it should make us sick as well. This brings us to why Christ showed such mercy to Paul. Why did he do that? Well, the overarching reason is because of the love that he had for Paul. We see this over and over uh, throughout the pages of the Bible, but Paul gives two supporting reasons, if you will, in the text that we have before us. Paul was shown mercy because of, the, because of his ignorance and so that he could become a living illustration. So we're going to look at ignorance and illustration. He was shown mercy because of his ignorance and so that he could become an illustration of God's amazing mercy. We see ignorance in verse 13. Here's what it says, 1 Timothy 1, 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And this should immediately make us think about Jesus' words on the cross. Jesus, think about it, is, has been wrongly accused he has been beaten to within an, inch, within an inch of his life. He is bleeding out. He is hanging on a cross, naked, humiliated, as the crowd below him is mocking him. He's got their spit all over his face and his body. And when he looks down on them, what is his attitude? Is his attitude, oh God, get them, get them? No. His attitude is, what does he pray? He prays to the Father and he says this, Father, forgive them. What? Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. Ignorance, right? Ignorance. These people, all these people that were mocking Jesus would have considered themselves the people of God, to be following the true God, to love his law. And yet when the long-awaited Messiah came, the one that would bring them true deliverance, they didn't acknowledge him. They didn't recognize him, in part because their leaders, their religious leaders who were responsible to teach them these things, looked at Jesus and said, no, that's not the Messiah, even though he did everything that the Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would do. They said, no, 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 he's not the Messiah. And so they rejected him. Here's what I want you to take away from this regarding Paul's ignorance. When people hurt us, when people persecute us, when they make life difficult for us, especially because of our faith, the tendency that we have is to hate them, right? The tendency that we have is to hate them and to fight against them with our words and with our actions. And when we hate them, I'm just going to tell you this, the likelihood of reaching them or even desiring to reach them drastically decreases. Why would I want to reach out to this person? We conclude that although God has superabounding grace, it's not enough to cover their sins, nor would we want it to cover their sins. We'd be happy to see them punished for how they have treated us. We begin to despise them, forgetting that just like us prior to receiving God's grace, we, they are ignorant now. 
The world has told them that Christians are wrong. The world has told them that our morality is from the Middle Ages, that belief in God is, is a fairy tale. That popular opinion is, is what matters. Not this, not, not this uh, some outdated 2,000-year-old book. Why would we get our morality from that? They're ignorant. They're ignorant. Now, I would caution you for a second. Please do not go into work <laughs> tomorrow, right? Uh, and say, hey, I understand why you're so mean to me, why you don't want me to talk about Jesus. It's because you're ignorant, right? Um, if you're talking to your boss, then they'll probably say yes, and you are now unemployed, right? Um, so I would encourage you not to do that. Rather, let your realization of their anger, of their ignorance, result in an overflowing love and compassion for them. Put it in perspective and say the reason that they're doing this, they don't even realize it, is because they do not know God. They do not know what the future holds for them. They have bought into the world. They think that this is right. There's a way that seems right unto a person, but the, the end is the way of death. They don't know it. They're ignorant. Let that be your motivation rather than they're attacking me and I need to attack them back. It's that, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Paul was shown mercy. Why? Because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. This brings us to the other reason why Paul was shown mercy. And it was so that Jesus could display Paul as an illustration of his overflowing, abundant, amazing grace. We see this in verse 16. It says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is basically saying is this, Jesus showed a great mercy to me so that I could be an example to anyone who would be tempted to think for a moment there's no way that God could ever save someone like me. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the thoughts that I've thought. There's no way that God could ever extend mercy to someone as vile as me. And Paul's like, up, oh, yep, I am an example of that. Let me tell you what I have done. Let me recount all the things that I have done. And Paul is saying there is hope. There is hope for you. And here's the hope. It's found in the pages of the Bible. I'm just going to read a couple verses. There are hundreds of them. The first is in Isaiah 1:18. God speaking to vile sinners. He says this, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Oh, I know that stain is really, really bad. And you're wondering, there's no way anyone can ever get it out. No, I can get it out until it's white as snow, as if there was no sin ever there. Psalm 103, I love this. 103 verse 12, the psalmist says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's a long distance, right? The east and the west never meet. Where's my sin? Well, it went that way, right? And I never see it again. It is gone, gone, gone. That's how far he removes it. It's no longer associated with us. Luke chapter 7, we talked about this, that woman who comes who's a vile sinner, everyone looked down upon her. Jesus' words to the man who looked at her with contempt was this, therefore I tell you, her sins 
which are many, make no mistake about it, I'm not trying to minimize it, her sins which are many are what? Forgiven. Really? Yes, forgiven. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, John says this, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from how many sins? All sins. Not most not that, you know, well, we can't include the real bad ones. No, it cl cleanses us from all sins. And then he goes on in verse 9 and says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I love the story in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's this criminal by him who is a thief and a murderer. This is what he's done his whole life. And then his last moments, like he's got just a couple hours to live, if that. He looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Really? <laughs> really? You've lived your whole life like the devil and now you expect me to bring you to where I am? That's what we might have said. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, hey, hopefully you can survive this, get down and do some good works, and then we'll talk about it. No, Jesus looks at this vile sinner and says, today, you, you, think about all you've done, you will be with me in paradise. Your sins are all gone. That's what Jesus was saying. And then finally, Romans 5, 20, which is the verse we all should memorize when we're burdened with our sin, it says this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Oh, my sin is coming in with a flood. Well, God's grace is coming in as a larger flood that wipes them all away. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you have done or could do that is beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. He welcomes sinners like you and me because he came to live and die for sinners like you and me. We don't surprise him. He's not like, oh, I didn't realize that they would do that. No. He saw everything in the future. He knew exactly what he was doing. Realizing this should give us an attitude of praise and thanksgiving in our hearts. And so I'm going to close with Paul's words um, as he just, man, he is just raptured up into the sky as he's thinking about God's amazing grace. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 17, the last verse in our text. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oh, how often I forget your amazing grace. How often the enemy comes in to tempt me that it didn't take much to save you. Oh, it took so much to save me. Remind us of our sin, not to humiliate us. That's not what you do. Not to uh, create this, this, this pressure and this sense of hopelessness, but remind us of our sin to remind us of the amazing grace that you have given us and help us to live lives that reflect a heart of love and gratitude towards a God who is so gracious to us. 
Help us to celebrate your amazing grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.